0: Hello and welcome back to the Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Chisani. As always, before we get into today's podcast, I just wanted to take a moment to thank the people that have rated or reviewed the podcast in iTunes. You know what? I didn't actually realize that when I've been checking in iTunes for reviews, um, given that I'm based in the UK, it means that I've only been actually seeing reviews from people in the UK. But I have now found out how to see reviews from people in other countries as well. And so somewhat belatedly, and I really hope that you are still listening to the podcast, um, I would like to say thank you to the following people. So there's Glasgow121, HadMonster, Laney12345678, and Becky Peacock, all from the USA. To Doctor Zoo and Ocon6015 from Australia. To Snotlegs, and I love that name, so to Snotlegs from Canada, and most recently to Nora, who's a vet from Oslo, Norway. Sorry not to have acknowledged your reviews sooner, and thanks very much. Um, I do also want to thank Harry Dude and VN Vicky, who have rated and commented on the podcast from the UK since the last time we recorded. So thanks very much to all of you, and if anyone else can spare a little time to do the same, as always, that would be great. Okay, so enough of the preamble. Let's get on with our podcast today. Today's episode is going to be on lymphoma in dogs and cats. And I'm joined for this episode once again by Chiara Leo, who has appeared on these podcasts before. And actually, I was just looking back, and I can't believe that it has been over a year since we first did um, an oncology episode. Um, Since we last had Chiara on the podcast, she has upgraded her title to a lecturer position, which is great. And thanks very much, Kiara, for joining me once again. Thank
1: you, for giving me the opportunity of participating again.
0: Okay, cool. And don't panic, okay? It'll be fine. I will. I'm going to, I got it. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll we'll, we'll carry on. (laughs) Um, So, today, Chiara, look, I wanted to talk about lymphoma in dogs and cats because I guess my perception is that this is a relatively common type of cancer in these species. And to get started, I wondered if you actually have any data um, about the prevalence. ...of lymphoma in pet dogs and cats? And also, what percentage of the overall cancer diagnoses does lymphoma constitute...
1: Oh, that's a very difficult question, Shailene. Why is it difficult? <laughs> because we don't have that many cancer registries, especially here in the UK. There's none, actually, so it's difficult to give a, a precise incidence of the mm. disease. But what we can see, say is that definitely it is one of the most common cancers for dogs and cats. Um, some previous studies, they have reported an incidence which varies between 7 and 24% of all malignancies in dogs. Which means that it is a a very common disease. And considering that cancer is the main, um, the most common reason for death in animals, having 24% um, of the disease being lymphomas means that it is a very common disease.
0: So it accounts for a significant number of deaths. It does.
1: And interestingly, the incidence apparently is increasing together with the human counterpart. And this is, if you think about it, this is uh, quite um, expected because we do share the same environment and also the same, um, you know, environmental um, carcinogens and the pollution together with our animals so there is a reflection in our animals of the increasing incidence for lymphomas as well as in in human
0: so that's really interesting i didn't know that because one of one of the things i was well the next thing i was going to ask you was um, about whether there are any associated like risk factors or indeed genetic predispositions and i guess what you're saying is that there are some associated risk factors in the terms of environmental factors.
1: Um, actually, it is a very complex disease. There are definitely some genetic, um, a genetic component. We know, for example, that some breeds in dogs, they are more prompt to develop mm. certain types of lymphomas. But uh, we also know that cats, for example, infected by FLV or FIV viruses, they also have a higher incidence of lymphomas and leukemias. Um, there are some studies which are suggesting that there are some pollutants which could lead to the development of of cancer, especially for lymphomas. So it is very difficult to distinguish what is leading to what. But um, definitely what we know is that FLV and FIV cats, they, they do develop lymphomas more than other cats. And the reason for that is that the FLV virus directly insert a specific oncogene in the DNA of cats. So there is a very um, sudden and they are very prompt to develop this, this disease. Whereas the cats with FIV, they are immune depressed and the immune system is the best weapon that we have to fight cancer, so there is a lack of detection of the cells, which are, you know, becoming kind of crazy, Mm. and that's the reason why they tend to develop more cancer, and especially lymphomas.
0: So, that's really interesting. So, FELV, you get direct, um, I guess, genetic... Manipulation.
1: Kind of. Kind of. <laughs> yeah.
0: And uh, with FIV, it's more of a, the consequences of immunosuppression. Right. Um, this is, sounds like a crazy question to ask you. But if I was a domestic cat and I could choose to have either FELV or FIV... I
1: would pick FIV. You'd
0: pick FIV? Yeah, yeah. Is that just from a lymphoma point of view? Yeah. Okay. On
1: the other hand, it is true that we can divide... And this is just for cats, huh? We can divide the cat's population and the lymphoma incidence in what is called the pre FELV vaccine era and the post-vaccine era. Okay. So before the vaccination against, against the uh, feline leukemia virus, young cats um, positive to FLV, they tend to develop a specific type of lymphoma, which was the mediastinal one. And it was quite typical to see it in little kitten, like um, around one year, two years, Whereas after the development of the vaccine, the incidence of this type of mediastinal lymphoma has suddenly decreased, and the um, incidence of the alimentary lymphomas has Mm. increased instead. And the reason for that is that the alimentary lymphoma it is not likely related to the virus. But, and it is more a, a disease of the elderly cats. So there was time for those cats that before would have probably died of ELV to become old cats and then finally to develop the elementary lymphoma.
0: See, I keep saying it, but <laughs> every time I do a podcast, I learn stuff. It's great. Um, so that's very cool. And just going back quickly to the whole cancer registry idea. You said that we don't really have any. Do you know if anyone's trying or is anyone planning to try? Or? I
1: would like to. <laughs> you would like to. Yeah. Well, the RBC and? has possibilities, has the potential to do that. But uh, <clears throat> it is not just the effort of one um, you know, university. Mm. The whole country has to be involved. Mm. In the States, there is a big registry for cancer, I'm sorry, as well as there's one in Italy and there is one in Denmark, I believe. But uh, it is very difficult to register all the cancer patients in veterinary medicine. Mm. If you think about how many biases, how how difficult it is to get the right diagnosis, maybe some animals are just put to sleep without having, you know, just having the suspicion but not really knowing exactly what it is.
0: And I guess if you did that, um, you would have some (laughs) criteria that would say in order to be submitted to the registry, this is a minimum diagnostic requirement. At
1: least cytological and histopathological diagnosis, yeah. But it would be very interesting because if we go back to the um, environmental factors that we share with our animals, it would would be incredibly interesting to Mm. look at the geographic distribution of certain types of cancer, knowing, for example, that lymphoma in in dogs have been proven to, um, to be... um, I'm sorry, I don't know exactly how to say, but some dogs that have been exposed to herbicides, for example, they tend to develop lymphomas or... um, Apparently, the smoke, like cigarette smoke, Mm. that the animals, they also share inside the houses. It could be another carcinogen that can lead to the the development of the disease. So knowing all this uh, where in specific areas lymphomas have a higher incidence, maybe we can also predict in the future the Mm. same disease for people Mm. and also to prevent it.
0: It must be possible to do, um, especially nowadays with <clears throat> online collaboration. I'm sure that we can, not we, I, I wouldn't be involved but <laughs> I'm sure that you can do something. Anyway, let's, um, let's move on from that before I commit you to uh, okay, <coughs> creating your own cancer registry. Um, okay, so we've talked about Possible risk factors and genetics and FELV and FIV. Actually, I should say for anybody that's not familiar, although I think everyone will be, that FELV is feline leukemia virus and FIV is feline immunodeficiency virus. Okay, so I guess the next big question then is, could you please explain to us what lymphoma is? And also, I think that it used to be referred to as lymphosarcoma. And actually, I think there are still some people that do refer to it as lymphosarcoma. Um, So if you could explain, you know, why and what the correct current terminology is, that would be great. And also, before you start, um, remind us about B versus T cell and what's all that about.
1: Um, This is a... Um, It's more a a pathology topic (laughs) rather than oncology. But um, in the past, uh, the blood cells were classified as mesenchymal cells. And in the oncology classification of tumors, a malignant tumor arising from mesenchymal cells, it is called sarcoma. Now, um, in the past, in the last, let's say, decades, those um, blood cells, all the cells that arise from the bone marrow, they have been classified as round cells rather than mesenchymal cells. And therefore, the malignant tumor that comes from lymphoid cell has been called lymphoma rather than lymphosarcoma. So lymphosarcoma and lymphoma are pretty much the same thing. It's just that lymphosarcoma is a very old classification, and uh, it is a little bit um, not really up to date.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so, so basically we're talking about a malignant tumor of blood cells.
1: Of white cells, white and specifically cells. of the lymphoid cells. Yeah. So the, here is the difference between a lymphoma and a leukemia. Yeah. Leukemias are the same lymphoid cells, but in the bone marrow or maybe in the spleen, whereas the... Um, lymphoma cells, they come from lymph nodes or any other um, organ, pretty much, but the spleen and the bone marrow. So usually when you have lymphoma, you have typically big lymph nodes, or you can have enlargement of other organs, whereas when you have leukemias, you have circulating uh, abnormal lymphoid cells.
0: This sounds like a strange question, and it's all about terminology, but <clears throat> is... So, leukemia is a form of cancer.
1: It is, sorry, eh?
0: A form of cancer. It is. But it's not a tumor. Right? It is.
1: A tumor is... It's a
0: liquid tumor. It is a liquid <laughs> I tumor. <laughs> I remember from the yes. last podcast. A tumor tumors. is a
1: <laughs> neoplastic version of a normal cell. So, a cell that has acquired the ability okay. of proliferate, proliferating without stopping itself. Okay. Cancer is a malignant tumor. So, when we speak about cancer... We, it is impl- implicit that it is malignant. When we speak about a tumor, it could be a benign tumor or, or a malignant tumor. Okay. So when we speak about lymphomas and leukemias, they're always malignant. They are malignant tumors or cancers.
0: Interesting, because <clears throat> I think that terminology things. I think some people think of tumors as just... Solid Malignant. masses, yeah. but also just like masses. No,
1: know, it could be a could liquid tell. one. It could right. be. I remember
0: the liquid, yeah. the liquid tumours from last time. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and then, I know that lymphoma is classified according um, to a staging system, and that within the stages there are also subclasses so could you tell us a little bit more about what the staging system is and do you think it's useful
1: it is definitely um, the um, staging system is a way to define where the cancer has spread so which organs are involved in, okay. the, in the spreading of the disease which is quite difficult in lymphomas because as we said it is a liquid tumour. Anyway we distinguish usually five stages of the disease and uh, if I think to a dog with a general lymphadenopathy or with the classic lymphoma involving the lymph nodes we do know that if there is only one lymph node involved which is possible sometimes and this dog would be very lucky it is a stage one if the lymph nodes are of the same region for example the same hemithorax, it is called a lymphoma stage two okay If we have generalized lymphadenopathy of all the lymph nodes, it is considered as a stage three. Stage four would be with or without the lymph nodes, but involvement of liver and spleen. And stage five is pretty much every other organ but the liver and spleen. So if I have a dog with a renal involvement or with um, nervous system involvement, this is definitely a stage five, as well as bone marrow involvement. So that's the very first classification, um, the staging classification for lymphomas.
0: So before we carry on, um, is that based? So with each stage, is it essentially uh, progressive in terms of the dissemination?
1: Not it is. So, so, so um, is a
0: five always going to be worse than a four, and a four is always yes, going to be worse? Yes, we than know, you
1: know that the fifth stage it is usually worse than. Mm-hmm the previous four one we don't know actually if there's truly a big difference between for example stage three or four so if there is involvement of the liver and the spleen maybe it doesn't change too much the prognosis if you have a a dog with stage one yes he has a a much better prognosis but uh, I must say that this is what we know from the past and now there is a there is more evidence that there are several lymphomas arising from what we would call a stage 5 that maybe doesn't carry such a worse prognosis. Okay. So now it is a very interesting and the staging system is, what we have right now, it is quite old and we should probably uh, update it.
0: So in the, in the higher stages, it was thought that... Um, The higher the stage, the worse prognosis, but it may be that that's not entirely true.
1: For certain types of lymphoma, yeah. So, for example, um, we used to think that all the gastrointestinal lymphomas, which would, would fit in the stage five, they do have a worse prognosis, which is true in the majority of cases. But we also find out that, for example, if you have a localized mass in the colorectal area then actually they have a much, much better prognosis than a normal lymphoma. So... I would say, which this is not proven, and this is just an anecdotal... And a, we can't
0: have anything that's not proven on this podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the the <laughs> idea is that if you have a focal mass, a focal lesion, mm. a single lesion, it is probably much better than having the disease spread everywhere.
0: And with those cases that have a focal lesion, will, will they have any circulating... Neoplastic cells.
1: Um, But then it would not be focal. We would consider it as systemic.
0: But I guess that... How do you know that? Is it because you see it on a blood? It is very difficult to presumably wouldn't capture them all. No, you wouldn't. Though
1: there are some tests that we can run, such as, for example, flow cytometry on the blood. um, We will probably we will speak about this test um, afterward. But this is a great help that uh, we use to classify and also to um, to kind of assess where the disease is. This is a very simple test. It is literally just to, um, there are some centers, some labs here in UK mm. that will run it. Running, yeah. And you just need to take, if you want to do it, for example, on the, on the blood, you can do it. And the test would be able to assess whether you have circulating neoplastic cells or just normal lymphocytes. And, uh, that's the way you can assess
0: Okay, so when you are staging, that will be one of the things you'll be doing. You for example, all the yeah. results together yeah. and you come up with, Okay, yeah. and then um, I think you were going to say something about the subclasses and I interrupted you. Uh, so. No worries.
1: Um, we also know that this is another thing that we can do through flow cytometry, although this is not the only test. Immunostochemistry can do it, for example. Uh, but it is becoming more and more important to immunophenotype those lymphomas. So we know that lymphocytes, they, they can belong to the B cell family or the T cell family. Mm. Uh, actually, they can belong to many other families but these are the the, the main ones yeah don't, don't
0: go there uh, no no
1: no um, And we also know from the past that probably T-cell lymphomas they carry a worse prognosis compared to B-cell lymphomas. Though, recently some papers they have demonstrated that if you change a little bit the uh, protocol that you use for those lymphomas, they may have pretty much the same survival time of the B-cell. That's interesting.
0: Because do you have any way that people say say students or even people in practice listening to this? Do you have any way that they can remember whether T or B is? Well, we say B
1: for bad and T for terrible. Right, okay. So terrible because T actually, terrible. yeah, the the okay. tea uh, they they tend to be uh, more aggressive. And I, I always
0: get a bit confused. I think tea for terrible, I and mean, then is B bad or is it better? Well, or like? yeah, it's, it doesn't it matter. Isn't, as long as it, T it is terrible. Exactly. It's fine. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Um, so the next question I wanted to ask you is this: If I said that basically in any adult dog or cat that presents with almost any problem, except following trauma it would not be unreasonable to have lymphoma on your differential diagnosis list. Now, I'm talking here just about the historical findings, so we'll come on to physical exam, etc., in a minute. But just from a, the perspective of historical signs, can lymphoma basically cause any types of signs? And are there any signaments or signs that should make the vet in practice a little bit more alert to that suspicion?
1: Um, well... Not really, because as I mentioned before, a lymphoma can arise from every organ, meaning that it can cause every type of clinical sign. Of course, there are some clinical signs which are more Um, more common. For Mm -hmm. example, we know that T-cell lymphomas, they tend to have, as a paraneoplastic syndrome, hypercalcemia. Therefore, those dogs, they have PUPD or vomit or diarrhea. They, They are very flat. They feel really nauseous because of the hypercalcemia of malignancy. And this could be a very typical clinical sign. Or the lymphadenopathy, this is something that during the physical examination you can assess if you have a dog with big lymph nodes of course you have to put lymphoma in your differential but uh, otherwise especially for cats it could be quite subtle it could be just generic weight loss mm-hmm. or lethargy nothing really specific or maybe you can have a an animal which is very anemic or thromb- thrombocytopenic so the development of petechiae, for example and this is due to some immune-mediated response or the infiltration of the bone marrow.
0: So, um, so basically, it can do anything to you. Um, and even if I have a trauma patient, they may also have lymphoma. If they're yeah. Very unlucky. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, fine. And I mean, are there any papers that you know of published looking at? I realise it's almost sacrilege to even say this, but like looking at whether there are five most common clinical signs in lymphoma patients or anything like that? Is it just like too crazy to even... Well,
1: clinical signs, I don't know if it's appropriate to say, but uh, hypercalcemia, so PUPD, for example, Mm -hmm. it would be one of the most common one. Um, In the physical examination, as I mentioned, lymphadenopathy, weight loss, anemia, and thrombocytopenia, these are probably the most common one.
0: Interesting. Um, I guess that's concerning because it means that if any animal starts to get sick...
1: You may have to consider <laughs> cancer. On li- cancer course. in general yeah.
0: might be on their list, but um, yeah. that's pretty depressing. I
1: have a very sad joke that I always uh, <laughs> tell to my students, which is, especially in old cats, um, I, I, that it sounds really um, nasty, a nasty joke, but it is, there's a lymphoma in every cat. It's just a matter of finding oh, it.
0: <laughs> that's not nice. That, yeah... It's quite scary, though, if you know that, right? It's quite scary because, I mean, we all have dogs, cats, and... Anyway, um, <clears throat> so you've mentioned already a couple of times, um, you know, like mediastinal and elementary. Do Does the type of lymphoma in those sort of classifications, does that tend to therefore influence the signs that the patient is going to have? And do we have relative frequencies in terms of whether multicentric versus elementary? Well,
1: we know, for example, that in dogs, the multicentric form is the most common one, whereas in cats, the alimentary form is definitely the most common one. It is quite rare to see cats with big lymph nodes. Hmm. And actually, I wouldn't probably put lymphoma on top of my differential lists, but a cat that is losing weight vomits, diarrhea or constipation instead, um, definitely this would be on top of my list.
0: And what are the types again? So multicentric, elementary,
1: Which are the types? Yeah, what are the types? Well, um, mediastinol, as we mentioned before, or um, cutaneous lymphomas or renal lymphomas, lymphoma of the um, central nervous system, ocular lymphoma... um, Every Pretty much really every type so of... So
0: basically multicentric means...
1: Big lymph like. nodes, all the lymph nodes.
0: Okay, so multicentric means generalized lymph node lymph
1: involvement. Yeah. Okay,
0: and then you can have specific types relating to the organ yeah. system that's affected.
1: Yeah, the, I would say the most common presentation is a dog with big lymph nodes, liver and spleen involvement and nothing else.
0: Okay. And so um, in terms of physical exam, <laughs> you've mentioned already. I'm just going to keep talking whilst you cough. It's fine. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> just stay alive till we finish. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm not that heartless. Um, so we said big lymph nodes, maybe big spleen and liver palpable yes. in the dog.
1: Yes, organomegaly, yeah. yeah.
0: And is. then any physical exam? There's um, That's
1: quite quite a difference between dogs and cats i would say um dogs are much easier usually because they do have big lymph nodes in in the vast majority of cases you find these big lymph nodes Mm. in cats as i said the alimentary form can be quite subtle there's also this um we need to distinguish histopathologically between high grade lymphomas and low grade lymphomas so high grade lymphomas are the, the typical one, the one that appears all of a sudden that it is quite um, quick in, in its development, but would also respond very well to chemotherapy, okay. whereas the low-grade one has a much more gradual um, development The clinical signs, if we think to cats with alimentary lymphomas, they would be strongly dependent on the type of lymphoma. So, for example, a cat with a low-grade lymphoma, it would have probably the signs typical of a chronic IBD, for example. So the two diseases sometimes are very difficult to distinguish. Mm. The clinical signs are very similar. You may have some thickening of the uh, gastrointestinal tract. You have some weight loss maybe a bit of inappetence, but nothing really more than this. The reason for that is that being a slow-growing tumor, the, the body gets adapted to it. In the, instead, if you have a high-grade lymphoma, the proliferation rate is so much higher. They are much, much quicker um, tumors. So the, the clinical signs are much more dramatic. You may have a dog, that, a cat, that all of a sudden becomes... Um, constipated or has a very severe hemorrhagic diarrhea or starts to vomit because there is actually a mass occluding the the GI tract.
0: Sounds very unpleasant. Um, So actually, that's what I was going to ask you. I I know the answer to this question anyway, I think.
1: So why are you asking?
0: Because I'd like to know your experience. You said about the um, difficulty in differentiating chronic IBD and elementary lymphoma yeah so do you want to stab a, a hazard a guess at the number of cats that have been treated for chronic ibd that actually had lymphoma yeah or lymphoma that actually had chronic ibd
1: uh, i bet the majority of them they had low-grade lymphomas and it was but again it, it could be really really difficult from a histopathological point of view and uh, you may have to actually we know that the best um, tests to differentiate between the two of them would be a full thickness laparo uh, how do you say um, a full thickness biopsy yeah. of of the, of the GI tract, plus running a test which is called par. This test will assess the clonality of cells. In IBD we will have very similar cells but not belonging to the same family.
0: Right.
1: Whereas in a a lymphoma, since it is a clonal disease, we would have a monoclonal peak of this. Well, not really a peak, but we would have all clonal cells, so they are really all the same. Mm -hmm. The real question to me is, does it change anything in the therapy? Recently, I know that even the internists, they have become more... um, Peek Let's say that. <laughs> <laughs> that they Exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: they are not that much against using um, chemotherapy for IBD, <clears throat> knowing that actually it can work. We are talking about very easy protocols, like with alkylating agents. The most common one, it is called chlorambucil. Mm. So this association between prednisone and chlorambucil Mm. can work very well for both the diseases, for IBD and for low-grade lymphomas. And the survival time for low-grade lymphomas in cats treated with this protocol, Mm. it can be quite nice, like up to two years so the real question is, does it make sense to differentiate between the two diseases? From an academic point of view, of course it does. From a practical point of view, um, if you decide to treat the cat in the same way, I'm not sure that you need to go through... But I guess it
0: has some relevance in terms of, if you're saying to an owner that we think your cat has chronic IBD, <laughs> If that, if those, if that cat's clinical... Status can be adequately controlled. Yeah. It could live a normal lifespan, right? It can.
1: He or she could live a normal
0: lifespan. I
1: guess it depends on the stage of the IBD, on the severi- mm. severity, severity, severity yeah. of the IBD, yeah. because if it's an IBD that can be... Well, but here, the cat is telling you what it is, meaning that if it's a... Mild IBD that can be controlled with a diet, for example, mm. fine for the cat, certainly, certainly this is not the case of a lymphoma. The, a lymphoma would yeah. never respond to a diet. Yeah. But uh, if it's an IBD severe enough to require a medical treatment, then the treatment it can be very similar.
0: And you're saying that even in, in those IBD cases that need that level of therapy... Yeah their survival is still not necessarily guaranteed because of the severity of their IBD. Right. That's I understand. So so it may, in the end, not matter. If they're very lucky, they may live more than two years if they have severe IBD. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Um, Now, you've said a couple of times that um, dogs will often have generalized peripheral lymphadenopathy. And you said that in cats, that's very rare. So I have two questions for you. One is... If I see a dog that has multiple enlarged peripheral lymph nodes, that dog has lymphoma, right? Likely. (laughs) (laughs) I mean,
1: not 100%. It also depends where you live. Because, for example, Mm. the place where I come from in Italy... there's uh, quite a high incidence of leishmania, yeah. which is one of the diseases that can give uh, peripheral lymphadenopathy. And I remember when I was working there, 50% of my patients they had lymphoma, but the rest had leishmania. If you hear, if you live here in UK, probably the incidence of lymphomas in dogs having peripheral lymphadenopathy is much higher because yeah. you don't have such a you know um, you don't have that much leishmaniosis here. Still, you have to consider other infectious diseases, Ehrlichia, rickettsia, or um, something else that you might want to consider are these immune-mediated diseases, these immune-mediated lymphadenitis. Or if it's a young dog, like a puppy, after vaccinations, they may develop these big lymph nodes for a while, but it is not necessarily a lymphoma. Still, I would say that the best test you can do is always a cytology of the lymph nodes.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm being a bit facetious um, for illustration purposes, but um, because I guess we would rather people didn't say that dog had lymphoma without doing some diagnostics. Uh, definitely right? I, guess I, I was asking a question in a cheeky way to basically make that point, that it probably does have lymphoma, It's
1: always, but... always necessary to yeah. prove that you are dealing with cancer. I remember... Mm-hmm. Um, this professor of mine, um, he told me something very interesting. He told me, what do you think is more important in veterinary oncology, a false positive or a false negative? And then I thought, well, if, it's a, um, if I say that this is not cancer, but then it is, I may delay the time for... Um, you know for the treatment yeah, so yeah. this is very bad and he told me but what about a patient that maybe where well, you say this is a cancer and the owners they just put him to sleep yeah, yeah. right away <clears throat> this is even worse and he was very very right so before to panic or before to you know give a bad news to the owners i i think there are Cytology is a wonderful tool to make diagnosis. It's easy, cheap, and it gives you so much information, especially when you have um, big lymph nodes.
0: I should say, that um, remind the listeners that if they haven't listened to your last episode, I can't remember what number it was. I think it was seven maybe or something like that. Um, We talked about cytology there. So go back, listen. Um, And then in cats, so if I have a cat with big lymph nodes what are my considerations because you said oh you wouldn't put lymphoma at the top of your differential list
1: well maybe not on top top (laughs) (laughs) but still in the (laughs) the, the very high yeah um i guess we it's pretty much like in dogs it's very similar so you have to consider all these immune mediated diseases or infectious diseases
0: because one of the other things is um, is obviously like terrible skin disease, right? But then I always think, well, yeah, but you'll know that because you, can, you, can, you see can see it see there, them. right? Yep. So that shouldn't fool you. Okay. Um, then what I wanted to do was to ask you quite an open-ended question. Um, and you can go into as much or as little detail as you want. But I wondered if you could basically talk us through how you would go about working up a patient in whom you considered lymphoma to be one of the differentials. So... Let's, say, let's start with how do we make the diagnosis, talk to us about how we stage the patient. So what's the kind of good, sensible approach to yeah. a possible lymphoma case? And we've talked about how we come to the possible conclusion. Yeah. Uh, for the sake of simplicity, if we want to say, you know, a dog that has three big perimphal lymph nodes.
1: Yeah. Um, I have to admit i 'm very spoiled here <laughs> because of course, as a reference center we we do pretty much always we do the gold standard you know in terms of diagnosis and therapy as well. Um, the best thing we can do. And what we do is definitely cytology. The cytology is really the very first screening test that Mm. tells you this is not a lymphoma or this is very likely to be a lymphoma. And then we always run flow cytometry on the lymph nodes or on the organs that we think are infiltrated. And this is a beautiful test because, again, it is very little invasive, but it gives you so much information, including the immunophenotype, including the size of the cells. And uh, you can actually retrieve the same neoplastic cells, for example, in the bone marrow, in the blood, in case you need it. Definitely, we would need a baseline blood uh, having a complete blood count and also biochem to investigate if there are any organ um, organs that are suffering maybe because of the lymphoma maybe for other reasons, but this would have an impact on the um, following chem- chemotherapy afterward. For people that cannot run flow cytometry in order to have the immunophenotype, it's enough to do a biopsy and then to send it to the lab for a, um, immunostochemistry on the, on the histopathology. And what we do here, but again, because we are very, very spoiled, we do CT scan of our patients, which is quite a new and not always done Test. <clears throat> the reason for that is that we can really assess which organs are um, abnormal in the CT scan, and we are specifically interested in finding whether the GI tract is involved or not, which may be difficult through the ultrasound. Plus, we do also ultrasound, and um, what, we, what I would like to underline is that you don't have to trust the ultrasound too much. For example, for liver and spleen, there, is, there are very good publications which are demonstrated that you may have infiltration of liver and spleen without having actually abnormal findings in the ultrasound. So anytime that you want to do an ultrasound and you want to check the liver and the spleen, you always have to do cytology of the liver and the spleen.
0: So what's the... Um What's the value of doing the ultrasound if you're doing the CT as well?
1: Because, um, again, uh, through the ultrasound you can do FNAs. You can do cytology, ultrasound guided, whereas with the CT scan, it would be much more difficult. Yeah. And uh, if you don't do CT scan, at least I think it would be very useful to have radiographs of the chest to assess whether you have any mediastinal mass, for example. Or sometimes we find that there is also some lung infiltration of the lymphoma. Mm. Um, I think these are the most important tests.
0: So... Start by doing cytology on on the lymph nodes.
1: Yes, as well as flow cytometry if it's possible.
0: But would you do that... Do you get the cytology back first and then think about the flow cytometry? No, we
1: do send both of them. Okay. And usually the lab that reads the flow cytometry reads the cytology at the same time.
0: And so that flow cytometry you're sending at that point, what yeah. is that? F- what samples are you sending for
1: it's just that? It's exactly like an FNA okay. of the lymph node. Okay. But instead of um, spraying on a slide, we just put it in a little probe okay. and then we send the probe a couple of slides and everything is red.
0: Okay, so it's not something that requires you know a major invasive procedure hospitalization even it's a sample the same sample um and do you know how widely available flow cytometry is
1: it is becoming more common here in uk now there are at least two labs that i can think about one is cambridge university and the other lab is a private lab and actually don't remember the name of it Um, but uh, i guess that if you google it sure uh, flow cytometry dog lymphoma it may come comes up
0: do we send ours to Cambridge or?
1: We do send it to Cambridge,
0: Cambridge. yeah. Okay, fine. Okay, cool. So, um, final aspiration and samples for flow cytometry. Correct. And then once you get your results back, think about doing further staging.
1: Well, we do it at the same time. We do everything the same day usually because... um, we usually look at the cytology by ourselves and um, if it's a striking, yeah. you know, sample that is r- screaming lymphoma lymphoma, then we do all these tests. If it's a little bit uh, um, so if it's suspicious, but uh, we are doubting, then we wait for the official results before to go for other tests. Then. So I guess
0: people in practice... Um do you think that people in practice, they obviously have the ability to if they learn to do it, yeah. but do you think that they should be having a sort of minimum requirement that where they can suspect lymphoma on cytology, or do you think it's reasonable for them to send the samples off, wait for the results? I then... think
1: it is not rocket science to, <laughs> to distinguish whether a lymph node is clearly inflammatory versus suspicious of lymphoma. And if you have this suspicion, it may worth to continue with your tests. As well as, I think it's important to consider how the dog is doing. Because if you have a very sick dog, mm-hmm. it might be better to... The sooner you have the, your diagnosis, the, the sooner you can start your treatment. But sometimes you have... I'm thinking to the typical Labrador that comes in... With big lymph nodes, but Mm. still playing and and running, this is a dog that definitely doesn't need to have all the tests performed immediately. So you can wait for the official results and then go for the rest of the staging.
0: Okay, and I guess because I know and you know that some of the people listening to this, even though you're saying it's not rocket science either are not doing any cytology or certainly are not doing cytology for this now we would want them to learn and make sure the microscope works well and all that kind of stuff but the reality is that they're not all going to do it right Mm -hmm. so i guess we're saying if you have a a sick dog and it has big lymph nodes and you don't feel able to progress that case well then
1: maybe you can ask for a emergency cytology there are some
0: about referring it
1: or referring to a referral center of course
0: could i I think it's an important point actually in terms of the um The sickness of the dog. Okay, so I think we've covered staging pretty much. Um, Of course, then what follows on from that is the treatment of the patient. Now, I think the lymphoma is one of the most chemo-responsive types of cancers, and it was interesting (laughs) chemo expensive. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) We should change the name. Um, And you were talking about low grade and high grade, which I thought was interesting because I guess what I took from that is you were saying that. Um, the how primed the cancer is to respond to the chemotherapy depends on its uh, multiplication state at the time yeah. it's treatment started. I mean, essentially, I didn't put that very well, but you know but what? I And mean. then no, no, I know <laughs> what you mean.
1: Um, but it is very true. So, if you have a high grade lymphoma, you would expect a dramatic and immediate response to chemotherapy, uh, which could be quite rewarding.
0: Proliferation. Proliferation. That's Proliferation. The word I was thinking of. <laughs> Sorry, <Okay>. carry
1: on. <laughs> but it is true. The typical high grade lymphoma, you give some chemo and the lymphoma goes away. It may, well, likely, well, almost, almost certainly, it will <laughs> come back um, and the, the problem starts. But um, with a low-grade lymphoma, although the survival time is much, much better, actually, it, it, it would be much better to have a, a dog or a cat with a low-grade lymphoma rather than with a, a high-grade lymphoma. But it's important to understand that you don't have to expect a dramatic response okay. because those cells are very slow in growing as well. They are very slow in dying. So when you give use... That's the reason why we use just specific chemotherapies for those low-grade lymphomas. Okay. And those chemotherapies, they are usually alkylating agents and they are in oral forms. So these are tablets that the owners, they have to go ho- to mm. give at home mm. and they have a long, uh, long-lasting action because those cells, they die in a very long period. So it is quite normal. For example, the most common case would be a cat with an intestinal low lymphoma, and then you start the treatment. Yeah. It is likely that this cat is going to feel much better almost immediately. But if you check with the ultrasound, for example, the thickening of the, okay. of the gut, you will not see a complete remission. Maybe you will never see it, but uh, what he, you are interested in is the clinical remission, yeah. not really the uh, the macroscopic disease remission.
0: And um, so this is a bit of an obvious question, but what, what are we trying to achieve with when we start that patient on chemotherapy? What are we trying to achieve?
1: The quality of life, as usual, in, in veterinary medicine. In veterinary oncology, the quality of life is really the ultimate goal. If we can also... Increase the length of life. This is absolutely welcome, but the quality of life is the the main uh, the main goal. So when you have a sick dog, or even not a sick dog, um, and you treat it with chemotherapy you need to know the chemotherapy, you need to know what you're doing, not to harm your patients. But actually, in the majority of cases, they do feel immediately better. Mm. Those animals with cancer, they feel crap because of the disease, not because of the chemotherapy that you give. Sometimes also because of the chemotherapy, but because it has not been given in the proper way.
0: Um, And I should say, actually, that in that podcast that we did before, I know we talked quite a bit about treatment of cancer and changes in perceptions in recent times and all of that. So again, I'll encourage the listeners to go back and, and listen to that episode. Um, the other thing I should say is that we're not going to talk about the management of hypercalcemia here, because I think that's fine, but just I wanted to flag it to the listeners that we haven't forgot about it, but I've just decided not to mention it. Where it's present, you might need to treat something about it. Um, And then I guess the other thing is, can you talk to me about remission and rescue therapy and basically just summarize what remission is and what is rescue therapy? So
1: let's let's speak about the um, super common patient is a dog with big lymph nodes and a high grade lymphoma. When we start with the first uh, chemotherapy protocol, usually it is called an induction protocol, okay. and this protocol has the aim of induce a remission, which could be complete remission in, in in the majority of cases, and this is exactly what we would like, or even a partial remission.
0: And, and are you <laughs> defining remission based on clinical response or? N- it's always
1: not on clinical response not because no, because unfortunately there are some tests that you can run to look for the minimal residual disease. But the truth is that, that we will always have some circulating cells here and there. Yeah. Um, what is important is, again, to uh, give back the quality of life to these animals, so to have those lymph nodes to become normal again and the normal activity level to be normal again. So this is something that we usually obtain using an induction protocol. Okay. But after a while, even after stopping this induction protocol... In the best-case scenario, maybe one year later, this lymphoma comes back. It is quite certain that it will come back. And when it comes back, you can decide... Either the first protocol has worked very well, Mm. so you can re-induce using the same protocol, or you can use another protocol, which is called a rescue protocol. Usually the remission that you can induce with a rescue protocol, it is much, much shorter compared to the very first induction.
0: Okay, that's great. And in terms of the protocols that are available... um, I think there are different ones, right? And, again, we we haven't got time to discuss the the, the protocols in in detail. But I wondered if you could give us a quick summary of the ones that I guess you use most commonly. But also, you know, I'm always interested to know... In terms of evidence, do we have evidence in in terms of whether one protocol is better than another or does it end up being clinician preference Um, or what?
1: No, we do have some evidence that some protocols may work better compared to others. Now, do you remember when I was mentioning that it, has become more important now to distinguish between B and T cell lymphomas. Yep. There is some evidence that some protocols may work better on B cell lymphomas. Okay. For example, the typical what is called a chop protocol, and there are millions of names for this CHOP. Say chop. Chop stands for C is cyclophosphamide, O is the old name of vincristine, which was oncovin, right. H is a. I don't... I cannot even pronounce it, but it stands for doxorubicin. Okay. And P for PRED. Okay. So is, these are the well, four drugs. That CHOP? That's because C-H-O-P this. is oh, so like that's the, H there, the acronym yeah. of the... Sorry, just of the.
0: ignore me. I was like, what? Yeah, is it is CHOP? quite I'm, funny I because... I had a chop. I've heard of CHOP. I've heard of <laughs> COP. I've heard of COP. Well, COP
1: is without adriamycin, yeah, okay. without the doxorubicin. Chop, yeah, good. it, yeah, right. it <laughs> It's funny because sometimes when we have a dog with lymphoma that has well-responded to CHOP... And then has relapsed. We say, Shall we re chop him?
0: That's crazy. Excellent. So, that's
1: a very common one, <laughs> and probably the most studied one, the one okay. that has given the best results, especially for B cell lymphomas. Dr. Um, so
0: cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, vincristine, and prednisone. Yes.
1: Okay. Uh, now, here at the RVC, we do treat them. Uh, B and C, we treat them differently. And we tend to give what is called a LOP protocol for T-cell lymphomas, where LOP stands for um, lomastine procarbazine, vincristine, and pred. And the reason for that is that there are a couple of papers which are suggesting that T-cell lymphomas, they respond better to alkylating agents compared okay. to doxorubicin, wow. for example.
0: Interesting. And um, what if I said, I'm just going to put this dog on prednisolone?
1: Well, we know that uh, the <laughs> less... Just committed a sin. Well, it, it, is, it is a... Um, it is a decent um, choice for certain patients, also for certain clients. It it was a joke before, but it is true that chemotherapy is expensive and you need to have very committed owners as well. And maybe sometimes they just can't. So PRED is the very first chemotherapy that was used against these um, yeah. lymphoid cells. It works. It doesn't work for a very long time. We know that a dog with lymphoma treated just with PRED will have probably a survival time between one and two months, still with a good quality of life. In general, the more complicated is the protocol and intense is the protocol with more... Chemotherapies included in the protocol, mm. the longer is the survival time. Um,
0: <clears throat> have you ever had a dog uh, with lymphoma, your own dog?
1: No, my own dog died of hemangioceratopsis. Oh, I'm
0: sorry. Um, I was going to ask you, if, you had, if your dog had lymphoma, what protocol would you use the protocols that we use here? Or, oh, yeah, it, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fair
1: enough.
0: Um, And then the other question I had is that let's assume that a vet in practice has confirmed the diagnosis cytology, flow cytometry, done the staging appropriately and so on, is there any reason why they can't be initiating and managing chemotherapy for lymphoma patients? Or, and, and if there is or isn't, are there any sort of special precautions or equipment or anything that they need or
1: what? There's no reason why anybody can give chemotherapy <clears throat> as long as the vets know what they are dealing with. With all the adverse effects how to deal with the adverse effects, how to prevent them. Mm. Because what I see sometimes is that uh, there are some practitioners that start to give chemotherapy without really having any experience um, of it. And the moment that the dogs start to be sick, they do blame the chemo. Hmm. or it increases in people the fear of chemotherapy hmm. or the prejudice against it. It is not the chemo itself, it is the way it was used that was wrong. So this is a, a concept that I really would like to stress. Everybody can treat lymphoma patients with chemo protocols, but it is necessary to have knowledge of those drugs. Also, it is necessary... To have special devices to, or special protective devices yeah. to, um, for using it. And the reason for that is to protect ourselves and the people that work with us, yeah. Yeah. which is absolutely important.
0: So be informed about the drugs, make sure you have the right health and safety and protective yes. clothing and all that kind of stuff. Know, you-
1: yes, knowing about the adverse effects, how to prevent them, how to treat them, how to recognize them. Because I also see that sometimes it's, it's difficult for somebody without any knowledge or any experience to confuse Signs, symptoms which are made due to I don't know maybe the lymphoma is coming back or maybe it is the chemotherapy and they just think oh the chemotherapy doesn't work and then they just give up
0: do you think that's quite challenging so do you guys um, have cases sometimes that come back and you're not sure whether what you're seeing is
1: yeah but then you just repeat all the tests that we mentioned before (laughs) and and you have your answer yeah
0: okay cool Um, and then What I wanted to get from you was a sense of, in terms of the cases that the referral service sees here, how many of those are cases that are coming to have a diagnosis made and how many that are already on treatment? Just roughly, did you have a sense? I would
1: say that... uh, we don't see normal cases anymore here. Much we know more, like in, uh, what is called a naive lymphoma, so a, okay. naive, uh, a lymphoma that has never been treated before. Okay. As a referral, referral center here, we just receive. We, we just the majority of our patients they have been already treated. And then once um, there is the first remission, the first uh, relapse, or maybe they have become resistant to some chemotherapy, then they are referred here. Or we do see super weird lymphomas, yeah. like the weirdest locations, the weirdest um, presentations. Probably because I have the feeling that there are some vets which are learning how to treat them at the first instance but then they don't know anymore how to do it afterward and then that's the moment when they send it to us
0: and even the ones that aren't just you know here's a couple here's a couple of big lymph nodes um but so are we do we see more of the ones that are not peripheral lymphadenopathy type where you might have to sample the mediastinum or Mm -hmm. A kidney or something, or do you find that a vets are doing that as well?
1: No, actually, the majority of patients. Well, as I said, the complicated lymph—I call them the complicated lymphomas is, are the majority that we see here.
0: Okay, so those other those other sites, as it were. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Um, so we've also talked a lot about chemotherapy. Is there any role for radiotherapy and/or surgery
1: in um, the treatment? I am a big fan of radiation. You are. A big I fan. am. Okay. Um, unfortunately, we don't idea, have it yet. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Because the place where I, I, I specialized, um, we had the radiation machine and I had a beautiful radiation oncologist working with me and we were trying all this radiation. Radiation works incredibly on, on lymphoma patients right. because lymphomas are exquisitely um, sensitive to radiation.
0: And is that the same high grade, low grade? Does it
1: matter? Um, well the response is the same. So if you irradiate a low grade lymphoma, you will not see a complete remission immediately, but maybe a couple of months afterwards. Okay. The point is there are very few indications for radiation um, in lymphoma patients. As we said, this is a liquid tumor, it is pretty much everywhere. And it it might be very dangerous to irradiate the whole body. So there are some protocols that are, are being proven to be useful mm. um, for lymphoma patients, but uh, there is probably just a little selections of patients that would clearly benefit of it. And also we have to consider that radiation, um, it might add expenses to... You know, to all the chemotherapy and diagnostic staging and stuff.
0: And in the experience that you had with it, um, were, the, were the adverse effects anything that was particularly used to worry you, or is it? Is For it
1: radiation. A, yeah,
0: like is it a worry that maybe is overblown? Uh,
1: the suppression again, because it works exactly as chemotherapy, but you have to consider that you may irradiate big. Uh, areas, including the whole Bomero, and also the Bomero, would suffer of the radiation, or especially for the caudal part. So, for lymphomas patients, one of the most used protocol of radiation. It is called half-body radiation. Okay. So you start with chemotherapy, and then after four weeks, you irradiate half of the body. You give one week pause, and then you irradiate the rest First. of the body. But especially for the caudal part, you may induce some bad diarrhea. So it is not the easiest treatment. is not the most common one, and it is something that you may want to do on top of the chemotherapy for a very selected population.
0: Hmm. Um, And in terms of surgery, I guess if there are big masses...
1: Well, there's no point to do surgery if you know that your lymphoma is in more than one organ. If you are sure almost at 100% that you have just a focal mass or one lymph node, but to be sure you need to thoroughly stage your animal, Mm. then it makes sense to go to surgery. For example, in cats, there is this uh, specific type of lymphoma, which is very similar to the Hodgkin-like in humans. Um, Usually it will infiltrate one or two lymph nodes of the head and neck area. So maybe you see these cats with gigantic lymph nodes, one submandibular lymph node. Mm. Those lymphomas, they are very indolent lymphomas. The surgery might play a role. So if you remove it, Hmm. even without giving chemotherapy, you have good chances of of having a long survival time. But before to do that, you really need to assess whether this is truly the only lymph node or there is something else, including liver or spleen or circulating cells. Because if you have, it doesn't really make sense to remove one node when you have other 10.
0: Makes sense. Um, And actually, before we finish... Back to the chemotherapy, we didn't talk about, and I don't, again, I don't want to talk about it in detail, but in terms of tumor lysis syndrome, yeah, um, is that, a, is that a, a complication that you guys recognize happening we much do. at all? Or?
1: Actually, I have the feeling that we see here more commonly than what I <laughs> used to see, but the reason for that is that we, because we get more sick animals. Right. Um, It is a a syndrome that it exists. It is not super common. But every time that you have a a a patient with a diagnosed lymphoma and a massive tumor burden, so, uh, for example, very, very big lymph nodes plus a gigantic spleen and liver, you know that the, the amount of disease is quite high and you want to treat it with, immediately with chemotherapy or even with steroids, you may have a sudden die, um, death yeah. of the neoplastic cells. Considering that those cells they are four times bigger than a normal lymphocyte, for example, they also contain a huge amount of DNA, and this DNA also contains a lot of purines, for example. Or when they break down because of the chemo or the pred that you give, mm. they release a lot of um, electrolytes, for example which cause a, a great imbalance, electrolyte imbalance. So usually in a, in a typical dog or cat with tumor lysis syndrome, which is something that happens a few hours after having given the mm. chemotherapy, and for chemotherapy I also include steroids, um, you have hyperphosphatemia, hyperkalemia, as a consequence, hypocalcemia, for example, all these purines which are um, released and all the cytokines in, in, uh, as well, which can create a like a very severe inflammatory state, mm. plus this electrolyte imbalance. And, and then people
0: <laughs> like me get excited.
1: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it is, is actually. The <laughs> it is. It is one of the very few oncology <laughs> emergencies. <laughs> and the only thing to do is well, first of all, try to prevent it, recognizing which patient might be a candidate for a tumor lysis syndrome. Yeah. And usually for those patients, we suggest to stay hospitalized 24 hours and to receive fluids. And nothing more than this, because fluids are really the key. It's kind of like diluting all this um, rubbish. The, that, badness. the The badness yeah, that the, the cells enough. will release.
0: Okay. Um, and then the last thing is about prognosis. Because obviously you've said already that um, what we're trying to do here is to take the animal back to a decent quality of life. Yeah. And then hopefully, if we can, prolong their life with a decent quality or not. Yes. Right? So talk to me about um, the data that we have around lymphoma. And again, you know, it's a bit of a vague question. It is very vague. Uh,
1: and the, the answer is going to be focus. vague as well. <laughs> I, I would on. say that uh, <laughs> there are so many factors really um, influencing the survival time the type of chemo, the type of lymphoma, the organ which is involved. And I would say the range is between the two months that we said before, just with Pred, to two years, for example, in the best case scenario, a dog with a B-cell lymphoma, stage three, treated with the best chemotherapy protocol that we have that has responded very well. may live much more than one year or like two years. There are a little percentage which is cured, though it is a very small percentage, right. um, I would say an average of one year.
0: And, and we define cure, I guess, by permanent remission off therapy, Yes. I suppose. Yeah. So well, five years later, they're still... Uh,
1: this is, well, it is very difficult. There is no cutoff for our <laughs> animals. Yeah. Some may consider three years, some other a little bit longer. It, it's nothing has been written. Because they do have,
0: the, in some types of cancer, they do have periods in people, right, where they say if you are cancer free for yeah, five years. Yeah, then
1: you're considered, considered cured. Cure. We don't know for animals. We don't know which. So time.
0: that's interesting. So is it, is it possible for any individual patient in front of you then to prognosticate?
1: This is what we are trying, but there is a long, long list of prognostic factors that right. we want to consider. And still, some, still sometimes you have unexpected successes as well as unexpected failures. Um, this is the, the cancer that really needs a tailorized um, therapy, I would say.
0: So you would look at um, one of those Labradors that you described yeah. that was relatively bright and happy and had big lymph nodes. And you would look at a really sick patient. And you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell.
1: Well, this is a what we call a substage A or a substage B of the disease. So, if you have a sick patient, usually the prognosis is worse. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It doesn't mean that it's not worth to try, mm-hmm. because again, sometimes we have successes that we wouldn't have expected. <clears throat> but um, if you have the happy dog coming in, with, with its you know, with a ball, with a toy, and big lymph nodes, this is probably a good candidate for living a long time.
0: And um, let's not put the pet's carer to one side, because obviously they have to have an opinion, but let's assume that we put the pet carer to one side. Is there any dog or cat that you would see, that you would diagnose lymphoma to, that you would think this is not appropriate for me to be trying chemotherapy? Or would you think that they all qualify for treatment? I
1: think they are all qualified because, again, it is so... um, Sometimes I had surprises in in a positive and in a negative way. Um, There are very few patients where I feel uncomfortable to treat them. If they are really, really sick and and I know that the owners unfortunately, it's horrible to say, but if I know that the owners they do not have the financial mm. support to continue, and I know that it is a patient that will probably need a lot of you know drugs and maybe for the next for the first weeks also to be hospitalized well then I think it is a patient where I would probably not start any, any treatment.
0: Interesting. And the other question, I guess, is um, with an owner that doesn't matter how long they keep going for, how many episodes, this is a bit of a crude question, but how many episodes of rescue therapies would you feel are reasonable? Uh, I mean? Well,
1: like... until the end.
0: No, 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 it's
1: true. <laughs> What's that mean? This is, it means that uh, we know we have... Um, a list of drugs <laughs> we have a list of drugs, and okay. we always pick the one that we know works better on on, on those lymphomas <clears throat> and then once this drug starts to stop working we come to the second one and then to the third one. Unfortunately, this list is not a never-ending list. We have maybe 10 to 15 drugs that we can try, and we usually try all of them. If we have a very committed patient, and the, okay. uh, not the patient, the client, and the patient is doing fine, we do exhaust literally all the possibilities that we have. And that is the most frustrating part because sometimes we don't have... Truly, anything else to try? We mm. have tried everything, mm. and but the lymphoma has become to a point which is resistant to a lot of things.
0: So it does that, does it? it becomes resistant. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> um, now, actually, whilst you were talking about drugs, one of the drugs that came to my mind was Lspar. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have mm-hmm. to talk about it very quickly because I, I know that you guys um, w- when I was working in ICU and stuff we'd sometimes get cases where I'm going to try L-Spar on this patient and hope that it does something and so just tell us quickly a little bit about what what spar is
1: L-Asparaginase well, al- L- is a, a beautiful drug <laughs> <laughs> <It's> beautiful. <laughs> it is because it's not a chemotherapy actually, it is an enzyme
0: yeah.
1: and it works just on lymphoma's, um cells so this is,
0: is the only thing you use it for. It is the
1: no, only thing. I didn't know yeah. that. So it's a um, the lymphoid cells. They are not able, especially the lymphoma cells. They are not able to synthesize the asparagine, which is a, a, an essential amino acid that they need to use. So they use the one that is circulating in the blood. Okay. Giving this enzyme, which is the one that breaks down the uh, the, the asparagine, is kind of making those cells die because they don't have this amino acid. Mm. Um, they will become eventually resistant to the l as well because they will find out the way to produce it by themselves. But uh, for a while it works, and it works in such a way that it, do- it, it doesn't have any almost any toxicity. There are some reports of pancreatitis, but otherwise it is not a chemotherapy, so it is not dangerous for us, for anybody else. It is not and uh, and it works very well. It is a very good drug to keep for rescue protocols, for example.
0: I think that's why I remember it, Steve, because yep. <laughs> I remember your patients in ICU and I remember yep. them getting it. So, Okay, fantastic. Um, I think the whole, we won't talk about it, but I think the whole notion of cancer cells becoming resistant is quite an interesting mm. um, concept as well. Um, are there any have there been or are there any significant developments in terms of the veterinary management of lymphoma that you are aware of things that are coming yep. anything to tell people Actually about we new are advances? quite excited
1: Come on, <laughs> <laughs> Um and it is a another tool that we can use against these lymphoma cells uh, as I said before the main problem is that there is a point where they become resistant to all the chemotherapies So the Um, the solution is to use something which is not a hemotherapy. There are a couple of companies now that are developing what we call the monoclonal antibodies. And these are literally vaccines against the lymphoma cells. And uh, they are quite expensive to be produced. So far, it has been a, a beautiful... Um, weapon against many, many cancers in human medicine, okay. but uh, there wasn't too much interest for the companies to produce it for our animals as well. But because lymphoma it is, as, is really, really common, probably they have seen some advantage and they have developed these two vaccines right now. One is against T-cell lymphomas and the other one against Um, B-cell lymphomas. It is not available on the market right now. There are some clinical trials going on in the States. And actually, DRVC might be in the future one of the candidates for trying one of these vaccines. Um, So
0: just simply, um, how how does it work?
1: Yeah, it's very complicated (laughs) to explain.
0: Um,
1: Through two mechanisms. One is literally a blockage of some receptors on the surface of cells in the way that the signaling between the extern, you know the extracellular matrix and inside the nucleus it is stopped okay. on and on the other side it may mount literally a response an immune response yeah. exactly like a normal vaccination against the cells the cells which are destroyed by macrophages, for example.
0: Um, so when you, but I guess, what confuses me a little bit is when we call it a vaccine, it almost sounds like we're using it preventatively.
1: It is not. Um, but it's a therapy, I, it, is right? the, it is the wrong name. The wrong it is name, not really it? a vaccine. Yeah, it is okay. um, antibodies, is like to give to teach the body to recognise them and then to fight those cancer cells.
0: Yeah, So, because I think vaccine, I'm always a bit like, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, am I right in thinking that there's one for mast cell tumours? or? There's
1: not? one for melanomas. Melanomas, Yes, okay. which is also, this is already on the market. But this is a not a monoclonal antibody, this is truly a vaccine.
0: Okay, interesting. So that will be coming soon, and I guess we'll see. And um, is there anything else that you think that we haven't... Talked about. It's important.
1: Um, there would be room for <laughs> two more days of podcasts <laughs> Sure. Only inform us. It is such a wide and uh, interesting topic. I would say um, the the take home message is for me not to give up on those animals but also to learn what to do Hmm. and how to do it in the proper way. And if you are uncertain, just to refer to an oncology center, um, because uh, those lymphoma patients, they can be treated and then actually can have a very, very good quality of life and also extent of life.
0: And I think it's like you said last time as well, you know, veterinary oncology is a thing. And um, yes, you have a job, well done We, we exist, yeah <laughs> um, And, you know, it, it, just from this podcast You can see that there Especially with lymphoma You've emphasised how it's such an individual patient It is Consideration really in so many ways Yeah that it's a bit simplistic to just think, "Oh, you have lymphoma; you have this protocol, no. we're done." Right? Like In this-
1: fact, this is something that I always um, I try to teach to the students. It is not enough to say this dog has a lymphoma because there are so mm-hmm. many varieties of lymphomas, and I would I would like to hear this dog has a B-cell high-grade lymphoma, stage yeah. three, and yeah. Yeah. blah blah blah.
0: <laughs> Before deciding what therapy yes. you're going to use. Okay, fine. Um, we're done. Thank yes. you very much very <laughs> for well. joining me. Thank and um, I, I hope it wasn't too bad. And to the listeners, as always, um, you know, do feel free to get in touch and provide your feedback in the usual ways. And also let me know if there are any clinical topics that um, you would like us to think about doing a podcast on. So you can email me directly at schasani at rvc.ac.uk. You can use the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page, there's an album in there that contains links to all of the podcasts. Or you can tweet at Royal Vet College and use the hashtag Pod. Um, just a reminder again to please take a moment to rate or review the podcast if you can. You can do that in iTunes or in Stitcher Radio. Um, and I'd really appreciate it. And I know that all of the guests that appear do appreciate the feedback for the podcast. And obviously it keeps us motivated to keep recording them and making them available to you. Um, And until next time, then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.